Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We have temporarily suspended our in-person service and will be broadcasting live via our Facebook page, Beacon Church, and on our website, beacon.church forward slash live on Sundays at 1030 a.m. until further notice. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization, and a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to connect with you soon. So earlier this week, Lindsay shared with me a, a funny story about Grand Central Station, something I, I hadn't heard before, but you might be familiar with the, the mural on the ceiling of the, the Great Hall in Grand Central Station. It's this giant mural. And it, uh, it was a huge undertaking back in 1913 when they were doing this. And it took dozens and dozens of people, but there's a core team of about five people. There's an architect, an artist, and a few muralists who worked together painstaking hours to get this mural up on the ceiling of the Great Hall. And they, they get this accomplished. And a couple months later, a, a, an astronomer comes wandering through the Great Hall and looks up at the ceiling and points out that it's backwards. Uh, so this mural on the ceiling is actually backwards. They flip the image. And so east is west and west is east. And they don't really know how this ended up happening. But one theory is that an architect, when an architect does a, uh, a ceiling plan, they do what's called a uh, reflected ceiling plan. And so they'll lay everything out from the perspective of somebody from above looking down on the ceiling. Uh, but then, of course, an artist takes that picture that the architect put together, and they, they go to work on the ceiling, and they do this with it. And so when they flip it upside down, the, the image, it gets inverted. And so they put all this time and money and energy into this uh, ceiling mural, and they got the picture flipped. It was inverted. Uh, interestingly enough, in like 1944, they, uh, they redid the whole thing, and they kept it inverted, just, I guess, for nostalgia's sake. Uh, but today, we're, we're continuing in our series on the move, and we've been in this series from the beginning of the year, and it's a study in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Gospel of Mark, and we're, we're watching Jesus and the movements that he makes along the way, and as we've been doing this, we start to notice that people are getting confused by the things that Jesus is doing. And people don't know what to make of him. His family doesn't know what to make of him. The religious leaders don't know what to make with, uh, of him. Even the crowds are kind of confused about who he is and what he's doing. And the disciples themselves are starting to get a, a glimpse of who he is. But the picture is not quite clear. And as we're going to look at today, even the disciples, they, they were starting to get a picture of Jesus, but it was an inverted picture. And Jesus starts to correct that. And so if you have a, a, a Bible, I would love for you to uh, take uh, this time now to open up to Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. And we're going to be kind of studying through here. And as you're opening there, I wanted to catch you up to speed a little bit. Because last week, Robert, he brought us through the feeding of the 5,000 Jews and the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles. And he talked about just the, the category-breaking generosity and compassion that Jesus had and, and the, uh, the significance of that to the disciples. And we, we kind of pick up right after that where there's this story 
Uh, and it, it's right before what we're going to read now. But it's a story of Jesus healing a blind man. And it's really fascinating because this blind man is brought to Jesus to be healed. And Jesus puts his hands on him. And he, he, the blind man is miraculously able to see. But he, he's not able to see clearly. So he kind of goes from blind to Mr. Magoo level sight. And so he's kind of like stumbling around. He's like, everything looks like trees walking around. Uh, and then Jesus touches him again, and he can see clearly. And it, it's kind of interesting because we know, if you've been following along, you know that Jesus has all the power in the world. Like, he, he doesn't, this wasn't like he was, you know, didn't exude enough power. He healed people on accident. He raised the dead. Uh, I think Jesus was being really intentional in how he healed this guy because he, he's actually giving us a picture of what's going on in the, the lives of the disciples in this very moment, that, that they too, they're, they're kind of in this in-between stage where they're starting to see, but the image is still really fuzzy. And as we'll see, it's even inverted. And so we're in uh, verse 27. And it says uh, that Jesus and his disciples, they went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. And Jesus says, what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Uh, verse 30 there, that warning not to tell anyone about him. If you've been following along and reading through Mark, you see that comes up a lot. It wasn't because Jesus was trying to keep his identity a secret. It was more about a timing thing, that he, he wanted things to be revealed at a, a certain time. We'll see this even come up again. But Peter, it, he steps up and he says, you're the Messiah. Now this, this word Messiah, it, in Hebrew it's Messiah. In Greek it's the same word Christ. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Uh, it's a title. And in both you know, Messiah and Christ, it means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, from, from all the way back in Genesis, we start to get the prophecy about someone who's going to come. And he's going to, to rescue his people, this anointed one. Not just any anointed one, but the anointed one who's going to not just rescue God's people from you know, oppressive powers, but rescue God's people from sin and evil and brokenness altogether. And so when Peter is saying, you're the Messiah, he's saying, you're this prophesied one, this one that we've been waiting for, the Messiah. And right away, we get this picture that, that Peter is starting to see who Jesus actually is, which is a good thing. But very quickly, we realize that Peter's picture of the Messiah, Peter's idea of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah is going to do is a little bit backwards, and Jesus seeks to correct it. In verse 31, it says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. The Son of Man, that's a, a, another title for the Messiah from the Old Testament. It's talked about in Daniel and Ezekiel. So Jesus is actually defining from his perspective who the Messiah is and what he's going to do. And Jesus says he's going to suffer and be rejected and be killed and rise again. And, and Peter doesn't love this picture that Jesus is putting up. And it actually says in verse 32 that uh, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began, began to rebuke him. All right? which is kind of funny to think about. Peter just admitted that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and now he's willing to rebuke him and like, give him a tongue lashing because he doesn't like what he says. Uh, and it seems, it seems a little far-fetched that Peter would actually do this uh, until I, I think back to my own life. And I'm embarrassed to admit there have been times and seasons in my life where I, I have more or less rebuked God. Like I, I've been angry and frustrated with things that he did, and I've, I've cried out to him and, and kind of accused him of not doing 
things right and proper. Uh, and so even though it might on the surface feel like, who would actually do this? I, I think we can all say maybe we've all done this, where we've rebuked God because he's not doing things the way that we think he should be doing them. But then after this, it says, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. <laughs> he said, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He says, you don't have in mind the concerns of God. You have merely human concerns. That you're, The focus of your attention, your perspective, you're looking from the perspective of humanity instead of looking from the perspective of God. And what he's saying is, you know, God, God has this perspective. He's looking down on the situation. He's looking down on this blueprint of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah is going to do. And it's one picture. But Peter, you're down here looking from the perspective of, of humanity, looking up at that same image, and it's flipped. You got it backwards. Because you, you have your mind fixed on, on the perspective of humanity. And Jesus, what he, he goes through and he does here is he actually inverts that picture for us. And he flips that image back. Messiah truly is, and he inverts the Messiah in three different ways. First, he inverts what the Messiah does. So in Peter's perspective, in, in the world's perspective, the Messiah was somebody who was going to come and be this conquering king. He was going to prosper, and he was going to grow in fame and popularity, and he was going to rule with power. And Jesus flips that completely upside down and says, well, no, instead of prosperity and success, I'm, I'm going to suffer. Instead of fame and popularity, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be rejected by the people. And instead of rising to power and uh, you know, having all of this kingship and authority, I'm, I'm actually going to let them kill me. But then he also says that he's going to rise again. And you have to see how this flips everything as well. Because from Peter's perspective and the world's perspective, dead people do one thing. They stay dead. <laughs> and Jesus says, but no, no, I'm flipping that as well. Because three days later, I'm going to walk out of that grave. And, and he takes this picture of what the Messiah is going to do in Peter's perspective and in the world's perspective. He flips it upside down. He says, I'm going to suffer and be rejected and die, and I'm going to rise again. But then he also inverts how the Messiah saves. Because in, in Peter's perspective, in the world's perspective, the Messiah is going to save us by being this conquering king. He's going to save us and rescue us from all the, the sin around us. Like what Peter wants is somebody come in and to rescue him from Rome, the oppression of Rome, from the corrupt religious leaders. He's seen Jesus go around healing sick people and casting out demons. He wants a Messiah who's going to come and, and save him from sickness and save him from demons and rescue him out of the, from the sin that's out here. Right? We want a Savior who's going to rescue us from coronavirus. We want a Savior who's going to come and, and rescue us out of crashing stock markets and rescue us from selfish people that are hoarding things to themselves or angry people that are lashing out. At us. You know, we want a Savior who's going to rescue us from the sin that's out here. And Jesus says, no, no, no. what I'm, I'm coming to do is actually rescue from the sin that's within. That's why he must die. You notice that imperative there. He doesn't say, I'm going to die. He says, I, I must, I must suffer, I must die, I must be rejected, I, I must go to the cross for you because that is how he is going to deal with the sin within. And this is the Savior that we need. We need the Savior that's going to save us from the sin within, not just the, the sin without here. Because I don't know about you, but if, if Jesus decided right now to 
just escort me out of life as I am and plant me in a utopian society, it would not be a utopian society for very long because I would break it. <laughs> there is sin within me that will break that situation. Like some of you guys have been home all week with your families and uh, these are the people that you love most in the world, but you get a little bit of cabin fever and tensions are high and, uh, and you look around and it might be part of you that thinks like, they're all the problem, but there's also, like, if you're honest with yourself, you recognize that I'm, I'm a little bit the problem here, too. Like, God could fix all of their problems, but I still have problems within me. And Jesus didn't come just to save us and rescue us from the sin out there. He came to save and rescue us from the sin within here. And he flips that image of how the Messiah saves. And then third, he flips the image, he inverts where the Messiah goes. If you skip down to chapter 9, verse 2. It says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, and he led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there, he was transfigured before them. He was like transformed. He says his, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. I love that little parenthetical note there. <laughs> he didn't even know what to say. Uh, but he, he, said, he has this sense that he just wants to stay in this place. Wherever, where he is right now, it's good. It says, Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Now pause here for a second, because you, you may remember that all the way at the beginning, in Mark 1.1, Mark starts this gospel by saying that this is the, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Right? Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, when Peter is asked, who, who, who am I? He re- replies, you're the Messiah. Right? But something's missing from here. Peter was starting to get the picture. He saw that Jesus was the Messiah, but he, he didn't yet understand that he's also the Son of God. This is a complete category shift for Peter because Peter was expecting the Messiah to be a man who would kind of lead him up to God, not God coming down. Jesus inverts that picture. It says, suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And what's, uh, what's so fascinating about verse 9, and we could read past it so quickly, is Jesus came back down the mountain. Peter, Peter, he had this idea as like, hey, this is great. Let's stay up here. We can set up our own little quarantine tent with Moses and Elijah and you, and we just stay here on the mountain. And I think there is this temptation that we can have as Christians to want to retreat, to want to just have these supernatural experiences with Jesus and get away from the problems in the world and enjoy his, his peace and his glory. And we can spend our whole lives trying to recreate these mountaintop experiences. But you know, never in scripture are we exhorted to seek mountaintop experiences. We're told to seek God's face in prayer and to seek his will in his word, but we're never told to like, go you know, try to find these supernatural experiences with God. And, the, and contrary to that, we're actually told to go and make disciples, and this is what we see Jesus doing. Instead of Jesus just staying there and clinging to his glory, we actually see a Messiah who inverts the picture, and he sets aside his glory, and he comes back down the mountain 
to engage in the, the mess that's down here. And he flips the script once again. He inverts that picture. See, for, for Peter and I think the, the world in general, we have this, this hope that there is going to be a Messiah, and that Messiah is going to be prosperous and successful, and he's going to rise in fame and popularity, and he is going to accumulate power and prestige, and he's going to use that power and prestige to save us, to rescue us from all the sin that's out there in the world. And, and as he does that, he's going to lead us up to the mountaintop where we're going to enjoy his glory forever, right? And, and there, there's some truth to that, but at the same time, Jesus comes and he gives us a, a completely different picture where instead he sets aside his glory. And then he comes down the mountain, not to save us from the sin outside of us, but he, to save us from the sin within. And he does that by suffering and being rejected and dying on a cross and rising again. You see, these are going in two different directions. He flips the picture entirely. He inverts the picture of who the Messiah is. And this isn't just mere theology. Jesus actually connects the dots for us, and he shows that this has practical implications for our lives. That actually, this, this will shift the entire trajectory of our lives. If you go back a little bit to chapter 8, verse 34, it's right in between these two stories. Jesus he points out the implications that this has on our lives. In verse 34, he says, Then he called the crowd to him. This is right after rebuking Peter and saying, You know, you only have the concerns of man instead of the concerns of God. He says, Then he called the crowd to him along with the, his disciples. All right, so it's not just the disciples, it's the, the disciples and the crowd. This is, this is a message for everyone. He says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you got to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Now, uh, I don't know if you know this, but in the New Testament, the word Christian only shows up three times in all of the New Testament. Uh, but the word disciple shows up almost 300 times. Because that was the, the word, that was the term that was used to uh, most often to identify people who were with Christ. They were disciples. And that word disciple means to just be a follower, really. So Jesus is essentially saying, if you want to be a follower of me, you need to follow me. Which kind of just makes sense, right? Uh, now, I, I want to do a little bit of an exercise with you. And we're working on the honor system here because I can't see you at home. Uh, I have a handful of people. I have the band here and everything. So I'm going to you know, pull you guys into this. You guys remember you know, the game Follow the Leader, right? All right. Uh, you guys can even stand, shake it out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, if you're at home, get off your couch. I know. Your, your couch is even more comfortable than our blue chairs. All right, we're going to do a little follow the leader uh, exper uh, experiment right now, all right? So I'm going to ask you, can you put out your right hand and just hold it out there until you, all right, hold it out there. All right. Now, how many of you, all right, how many of you did this? <laughs> did the whole, wait a second, I'm going to do the, the wave instead. Because when you, you saw me, you, you have an inverted picture of me. And so you followed where I pointed instead of 
following what I, I was saying. You can put your arms down. There's some of you might still be at home. You might still have your left hand sitting out there right now because you, what you're looking at is an inverted picture. And you guys, you guys can sit down. But you're looking at an inverted picture. And if you're, looking, if you're looking at an inverted picture of the Messiah, then when you follow that Messiah, you're going to be following an inverted pathway. Right, And so we get this inverted picture where that says, if you want to get ahead in life, what you need to do is you need to be prosperous, and you need to be successful, and you need to look out for number one, and you need to make sure that people like you, and you know, build your reputation, and you need to make sure to accumulate power and influence. And then with that power and influence, you need to make sure that other people's sin and brokenness stays away from you, that you're able to protect yourself and not be brought down by their sin and brokenness. And as you do that, then you you also, you need to do is you need to kind of retreat away from it and you need to get these private, personal, you know, supernatural experiences with God. And and there is a version of Christianity that looks very much like this. And and I think it's actually rampant today, a version of Christianity that looks very much like this, where it's, it's all about me just trying to do life in the normal way and gain, you know, power and prestige and popularity and prosperity, you know, make sure other people's sin doesn't get on me and mess up my life and retreat away and have these own, you know, my own personal supernatural experiences with God. But Jesus comes on the scene and he says, wait a second, that's, that's not what I do, And if you're a follower of me, that means you follow me. And I set aside my glory and I came down the mountain. And so for you, that looks like denying yourself. Not retreating away to protect yourself, but engaging with the mess. And I didn't didn't come just to deal with everybody else's sin on the outside. I came to, to help you deal with the sin on the inside. And so instead of trying to, to you know, guard ourselves against being affected by other people's sin, we actually focus on our own hearts and we, we dive deeply into the gospel, applying that to our hearts, seeing and seeking the forgiveness that Jesus bought for us on the cross. And then we actually, as Jesus says, lay down our life for that gospel so that other people can hear and understand and appreciate the good news that they too can find forgiveness for the sins in them and be freed from that. And he says, I I didn't come and and seek fame and popularity and prestige and, and prominence. No, I came to suffer. I came to be rejected. I came to die. And so he says, what you're going to do if you want to follow me is you're going to take up your cross. You're actually going to take up your cross and and engage in suffering. Don't run from suffering, but even engage in suffering if necessary. Allow yourself to be rejected by people if necessary. Allow yourself to even be killed, he says, if necessary. In order to bring forward the message of the gospel and the truth of who the Messiah is. But then he also says, and we can't, we can't lose sight of this, he also says that he came to die and rise again. And following him into suffering and into rejection and even death, we also follow him into the hope of resurrection, a hope that cannot be taken away from us. It is a, a clear and concrete hope. And so the, the question I have for you is, which picture of the Messiah are you following? 
Is it this inverted picture that we see in the world where we're trying to just use the, the resources of the world to rid ourselves and protect ourselves against other people's sin and, and retreat away from it and have our own private God experiences? Or are we following Jesus, following Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who set aside his glory, came down the mountain to rescue us from the sin within by suffering and being rejected and dying and rising again? Is that the path that you're following? And you might be wondering, is this, is this really the right time to be asking this question? Like, there's so much going on with coronavirus. Like, can't we come back to some of these things, you know, after we get through this situation? But I think this is actually the perfect time to be asking this question for two reasons. First, is times of crisis reveal who we're actually following? So as Jesus is, is talking to the disciples in the crowd, Peter's there. He plays a pretty central role in all of this, right? And Peter's hearing this, and Peter is pretty confident that he's ready to deny himself and take up his cross and follow Jesus. Actually, right up until moments before Jesus was arrested, Peter boldly said, Jesus, I would die for you. And then shortly after Jesus was arrested, Peter denies knowing Jesus, denies following him, denies him three times in a row, in a matter of a short time. Because times of crisis, they actually reveal what we're really trusting in. And Peter, he might have thought that he had this faith in Jesus, but he still had this backwards picture of the Messiah. And once Jesus got arrested and that picture got messed up, Peter's faith started to shake. And so for you, in this time of crisis, I want to ask you, as you've experienced all of these changing situations, what has your reaction been? Does it look like following Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, who would set aside his glory and come down the mountain and deal with the sin and evil inside of us and suffer and be rejected and die and rise again? Or have you been following the pattern of this world? Have you just jumped on the the same sort of uh, ideas and patterns that everyone else has been doing and being overcome with anxiety and fear and complaining and lashing out at people and hoarding? What has been your reaction? And and times of crisis like this are a great opportunity. It's a great lens to see where we really are and to reveal who we're really trusting and which image of the Messiah. And and I don't say this to, like, guilt you or shame you, because I I do want to remind you, all right, I want to remind you, this is a safe question to ask. Because if you find that you, you do have, maybe you might not have responded the way you thought you would, I want to remind you that after Peter denied Jesus, That wasn't the end of his story. Jesus welcomed him back with open arms, received him back, and restored him. And Peter became one of the pillars of the Christian faith. And so there's a safety in asking this question and honestly assessing, wait a minute, maybe I I haven't been following this Jesus. Maybe I've been following an inverted picture of the Messiah. There's another reason why I think this is a great question to ask right now, and that's because times of crisis offer opportunities to reflect the Messiah to the world around us. Really unique opportunities to reflect the Messiah to the world around us. Earlier this week, Chris shared an article with some of the staff from the Gospel Coalition, and in this article, it talked about the various responses Christians and churches have had to plagues and diseases throughout history, from the beginning of the church. And historians actually tell us that times of crisis like this were critical moments 
in the church, especially in the, the Roman Empire when the church was nothing. It was just the, kind of this obscure group of people that were in the shadows, maybe. They actually grew to prominence within the, the Roman Empire to actually become the dominant religion of the Roman Empire in a few hundred years. And times of crisis like this played a, a pivotal role in that. And part of it is that they talk about how in, uh, there was this uh, plague that hit in the middle of the third century. And it was so bad, and, and people were so afraid of it that their sick and dying relatives, they would actually like, kick them out of the house and throw them in the streets before they were even dead because they just they wanted to protect themselves. This is how the world was responding to it. And instead, what Christians decided to do is to care for the sick. Not just their own sick, but even the, the sick around them in the community, strangers who they didn't even know, people who might have even been enemies up until the point they got sick. And they chose to run toward it. And many of them gave their lives for this. And as a response, the church exploded throughout the Roman Empire. And this has happened again and again throughout history. When the, the church decides to do something different. I love this one line in the article. He says, if, if the non-Christian response to the plague was characterized by self-protection, self-preservation, and avoiding the sick at all costs, the Christian response was the opposite. It was the opposite. They had an inverted way of responding to these things because they had an inverted view of the Messiah. It was flipped upside down because they were looking at things not just from the perspective of humanity, but from God's perspective, looking down on it. And so they did things the opposite. And, and I want to know what are historians going to say about the church on Long Island 20, 50, 300 years from now Are they going to see this as a pivotal moment in the church on Long Island? And are they going to say, when the world was responding one way, Christians responded the opposite? That when the world was responding with fear and anxiety and panic, Christians did the opposite. And they responded with hope and certainty in the Lord and peace and patience. And while well, the world was responding with, by, by hoarding and being selfish and, and trying to just protect themselves and their own families, Christians did the opposite. And they decided to be generous and to give, not just out of their surplus, but even give sacrificially so that others might benefit. Are they going to say that, well, the world... Well, the world was just kind of acting selfishly for their own convenience, and they were ignoring the mandates of the, the government because it was, you know, it was inconvenient that Christians did the opposite. And Christians decided that they were going to social distance, and they were going to stay at home, and they were going to actually abide by these guidelines, even if they didn't fully understand or fully appreciate them, because they wanted to submit to the ruling authorities as unto the Lord, and they wanted to love their neighbor well. When the world did one thing, they did the opposite. Well, the, the historians down the road say when, when the world just fl- you know, flooded social media with complaints about how annoying and how frustrating all of this is, are they going to look back and say the Christians did the opposite? And they flooded their social media with praise and worship and rejoicing in the living God, knowing that we have the hope of the resurrection. Are historians going to look back on this pivotal time in history and they're going to look back and see that while the, the world well the world was doing one thing, Christians were doing the opposite. While the world was being hostile 
and angry and, and pouring out rage and judgment and accusation and all the people that weren't doing things the right way, the way that we thought was right, instead of pouring out rage and hostility, we did the opposite. And we were generous and humble and compassionate. Years from now, our historian is going to look back on this moment in history and say, this was a pivotal time for the church where it started to explode and take over Long Island because the world responded one way, but the church did the opposite. They inverted the picture, and they followed Jesus. They denied themselves. They took up their crosses, and they followed Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, who set aside his glory to come down the mountain to fix the brokenness within by suffering, being rejected, and dying, and rising again. Let me pray for you. Father, your picture of the Messiah is the best picture. We know that. We trust that. And yet it's easy for us to flip that picture around. It's easy for us to get sucked back into just the the concerns of humanity, looking at it just from our perspective and and forgetting that you have a, a bird's eye view on this. You see it clearer than we ever could. Father, help us to see Jesus clearly. Help us to to trust that following him is the best way. Give us the strength and the courage and the faith to be able to deny ourselves. In the same way that he set aside his glory, would we be willing and able to deny ourselves, deny our needs, deny our rights for the good of others? May we be willing to take up our cross instead of just fleeing and revolting from suffering at all costs. Father, give us the, the courage and the strength and the faith to be able to embrace suffering, allow ourselves to be rejected, even to embrace death if necessary for the sake of you and the gospel, knowing that we have a better hope, a hope of resurrection. Father, we love you and we trust you with all these things in Jesus' name.